I'm Chris Mayer and welcome back to the ancient art of modern warfare. The Romans had an expression, lupus aribus teneri, to have hold of a wolf by its ears. While you could hold its ears, it cannot hurt you, but how long can you hold on? It's a situation that neither the wolf nor you want to be in. Previous podcasts of the ancient art of modern warfare describe the reality of private military and security companies, or PMSCs, and the importance of proper oversight and regulation. Until the appearance of quasi-mercenary organizations such as Russia's Wagner Group, the poster child for unaccountable PMSC activity was Blackwater Worldwide, operated by Eric Prince. Blackwater provided security for the U.S. State Department in Iraq, with numerous allegations of misconduct and impunity. The most egregious of these was the Nisor Square incident. On September 16, 2017, 17 Iraqi civilians were killed by State Department contractors working for Blackwater in an unplanned security operation that went horribly wrong. After a series of charges being filed, dismissed, reinstated, and appealed, the case finally went to trial in 2014. Three former Blackwater personnel were sentenced for manslaughter and a fourth was sentenced to life imprisonment for murder. This was overturned in 2017, retried in 2018 and 2019, which reinstated the murder conviction and reduced the sentences for the other three. While awaiting appeal of this latest conviction, on December 19, 2020, President Donald Trump pardoned all four men. The repercussions of that pardon are echoing at home and abroad. Although the immediate effect is harming the reputation of the United States, I believe that, in the long run, responsibility and accountability regarding private military and security companies, or PMSCs, might be improved. In this podcast, I'll touch on both sides of the pardon and mention why I hope that good might still come of this. To keep me on track, I'm going to try something a little different with this podcast. Instead of reading from a script, I've asked my wife, Debbie, to interview me about this. Hi, Debbie. Hi. <laughs> All right, so um, Nisor Square happened a long time ago, and can you just kind of refresh me on, on what happened there? Blackwater was under contract with the U.S. State Department to provide security for U.S. Embassy personnel. On that day, which was September 16, 2007, there was a meeting of Iraqi and U.S. Embassy personnel in Baghdad. A car bomb went off nearby that location. Another Blackwater team, called Raven 23, learned about the incident and prepared to respond to the incident, even though they had not been requested to do so. They were told to stand fast in the secured area of Baghdad, sometimes called the Green Zone, but they left anyway. En route, they reported their location and was told to return back to the Green Zone. They didn't. They proceeded on. When they finally got to Nisor Square, which is in a big traffic circle in Baghdad. They were told, okay, so as long as you're there, stay there and facilitate the secure movement of this other team as they withdraw back to the green zone. They did this despite the fact that there were Iraqi police already in Nisor Square. Did but, they see those Iraqi police? Yes, they did, but they ignored them. Oh. And instead they set up a traffic control point uh, to block vehicles from entering 
Nisor Square and to allow the safe passage of the other Blackwater team through. What kind of weapons and um, vehicles were they driving? Okay, so they're driving up-armored vehicles, heavily armored SUVs, and uh, in one vehicle was even more heavily armored than that uh, because it had a turret on it with a machine gun. They also had rifles and various kinds of grenades and one grenade launcher. Soon afterward, team members of Raven 23 began firing, initially at a car driving on the wrong side of the road and refusing to comply with their directions to stop. This quickly escalated to more general shooting by at least four or five team members using rifles, the one vehicle-mounted machine gun and grenades by the Iraqi police and maybe even by other parties. In the end, 17 Iraqi civilians are killed, and Raven 23 withdrew, towing one of their armored vehicles that had been heavily damaged. So you think that they were, like, spooked? Although there is still some debate as to what actually happened in terms of who shot who and what instigated the shooting, an investigation by the U.S. Army determined that Blackwater's actions were unjustified. Well, aren't they immune when they're working for the U.S. under contract? No, they didn't have immunity, and this is a very important point. First of all, they are not members of the armed forces according to the law of war, and therefore do not have combatant privileges or combatant immunity for well, essentially killing people on the battlefield. Second, they are civilians, and as civilians, they are prohibited from engaging in combat by presidential directive. Nonetheless, there is the impression, due to an infamous Coalition Provisional Authority Order, Order Number 17, that contractors had immunity. What that order actually says is that coalition contractors and their subcontractors, as well as their employees, shall be immune from Iraqi legal process with respect to acts performed by them within their official activities. But, it also says that all coalition personnel shall be subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of their parent states. Therefore, they're immune from Iraqi law under the understanding that they will be tried by their parent state. There were other CPA directives that were also in force. These include CPA Order 3, which limited the munitions and weapons that a PSC could have. CPA Memo 17, together with Iraqi regulations, confirmed these other CPA regulations and told them specifically how to register and operate in compliance with Iraqi law. Interestingly, Blackwater never secured the required Iraqi registration or licensing, and at the time of Nisor Square, they were using weapons forbidden to PSCs by CPA Order 3. So does that negate all their coverage? Uh, it definitely that? indicated that what they were doing was outside of official duties. There were other policy and guidance and regulations in place. In 2004, the policy guidance for contractor security was written, which covered what PSCs were allowed to do, what they weren't allowed to do, and how they were supposed to be regulated and controlled. One of these controls was the establishment of a contractor operations center that tracked all Defense Department contractor movements, approved routes, provided updated information to PSCs, deconflicted movements with the military, and coordinated military response when required. Further, Department of Defense Instruction 3020.41, Contractors Accompanying the Force, 
took the elements of the policy guidance for contractor security and made them official Defense Department instruction. Now notice in each case I said defense contractors, I know, defense department. So what's the, and you, before you said that um, they were also investigated by the U.S. Army, but the whole thing is that, that Blackwater wasn't working for the U.S. Army. We were working for the State Department, and now you're t telling me that, um, but all these rules are under the Defense, defense department. department. Okay, so ideally, this first uh, policy guidance that was written in 2004 was supposed to be a joint Defense Department, State Department policy guidance to cover all contractors that were operating in Iraq at that time. Well, that makes sense. Yes, except for the fact that the State Department decided in its final staffing process that they didn't want to play anymore. But the Defense Department operated as though it were in effect anyway, and like I said, eventually turned it into a specific Defense Department instruction. So 17 people died and many others were injured. Can you tell me um, what, was, what was the results of the investigation and what were the consequences of that resource work? There were consequences at different levels. You know, first off, there was a huge international outcry over this, especially when it was believed that these contractors had complete immunity, which they did not in theory. In practice, it was a little bit different. To begin, there was international effort. There was inter interest by the, uh, the international community, the International Committee of the Red Cross, other foreign governments, uh, the United Nations, and of course our own political leaders, and almost every human rights organization on the planet. The U.S. Congress directed the Defense Department to revise its regulations covering private security companies. And essentially we took the section of that earlier instruction that I talked about, 302041, and we expanded it into its own regulation that specifically dealt with private security contractors and contingency operations. Then Congress went out and told us that we have to go one step further and we have to write standards, commercial, business and operational standards for private security companies so that regardless of whether they're under a Defense Department contract or not, we know what's expected on behavior of a private security company operating in an area of conflict. Furthermore, the United Nations uh, Human Rights Council changed the charter for their UN Working Group on Mercenaries specifically to look at private military and security companies, PMSEs, and began work on an international convention that would restrict the use of PMSEs. All of these things came about as a result of the Blackwater incident at Nisor Square. Then we have the actual legal proceedings itself. What we thought we could do turned out to be not exactly what we could do. So although CPA Order 17 said that these contractors were supposed to be subject to the jurisdiction of their parent states, it turned out that that was not as easy to apply as we thought. Now, Defense Department civilians, personnel and military, of course the military can be covered under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Civilians could be uh, carried under the, what was called the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act, which allows civilians accompanying the armed forces to be tried in U.S. court for crimes that are also crimes under U.S. law. The problem was, as we brought up before, is that Blackwater was working for the State Department. And mm -hmm. even under the most expansive definition of the Military Extraterritorial Jur Jurisdiction Act, which was MEJA, okay, MEJA, you can only be tried if you were working in direct support of the Defense Department. This was a difficulty. Well, 
we tried to do media anyway. Okay, but they were definitely working for the State Department, they even though the they Army were came and investigated. They it. were definitely working for the State Department at one of the trials. The then former Deputy Secretary of Defense testified that the Blackwater personnel were working for the State Department. The State Department was not working in support of the Defense Department. And in fact, frequently, it was the other way around. But eventually, they were charged. They were brought to trial, as a matter of fact, a few times. And, uh, and, there, were, and there were convictions. So on December 19th of this past year, President Trump pardoned these men um, that were involved in this situation. What, why do you think he pardoned them? I mean, he did. 17 well, people did die. Well, yes. Let me, let me start off by saying that I completely agree with the Army investigations. What happened at Nisor Square that day was inexcusable, caused irreparable damage, uh, not only to the U.S. reputation, but undermined the nascent Iraqi government and certainly led to the death of 17 otherwise innocent people. Absolutely unconscionable. Absolutely justice needed to be done. Now, I have no idea what actually drove the president's decision making, but I would not be surprised if what did was the overriding consideration was that the United States should not use unjust means in the pursuit of justice. If we're talking about the fact that we're worried about PSCs violating the rule of law, then we have to be scrupulous in following the rule of law to apply that justice. And that's where the problems came in. First, as I mentioned, there was the issue of whether or not they could even be tried. What was the statutory authority for trying them? Well, we used media, and eventually a court did decide, eventually a court did decide that it could be done. But clearly, the law says that it should not apply to them. The trials also included questions of evidentiary proceedings. In any homicide case in the United States, you have to be able to trace the bullet to the gun to the person holding the gun. Now, they weren't able to do that in the Nisor Square event. They weren't able to trace any of the bullets that they recovered to weapons that were being carried by the Blackwater personnel. Then there is the issue of who fired when, who fired first, what was being fired at, were they receiving fire? Those questions have never firmly been answered. There's also been evidence that was not allowed to be presented, especially in the final few hearings. So all of these, and when we consider the fact that there was another appeal in process, creates the argument that we were not following our own laws in bringing these people to be accountable under the law for what they did. So in addition to everything you just said, in the news they said there was a guy, the only witness of the whole thing turned out to be an insurgent himself. What, what do you well, that's, that's a claim that the so, uh, prosecutor that the U.S. government relied upon to do the investigation may have insurgent ties. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, okay? That's something definitely that could be brought up for an appeal. But the process that actually led to these convictions had some flaws in it. Now, the question is, we know that these people did something bad. We know that regardless of who shot who when, under U.S. law that applies to homicide, they would not have been able to use self-defense as a justification.
They, they had the wrong weapons. They were in the wrong... They were in the wrong... They went someplace they were told well, not, not to, to go, go to. right? They had weapons that they weren't authorized, that CPA orders and Iraqi orders forbade them from using. They fired indiscriminately. Fired indiscriminately. How do we know that since all the bullets that were recovered were not from their weapons, so how do we know they fired? They, they all admitted that they, they fired. Oh, okay. Okay. And when 17 people wind up being dead, that's kind of like indiscriminate. And none of them were identified as being insurgents or having any insurgent relationship. So what they did was absolutely wrong. However, the way that they were brought to trial and the way that they were convicted, there are serious questions about. And if we want to uphold the rule of law, the end cannot justify the means. So what do you think the outcome of this um, pardon will be? I mean, is, what's the future hold? Despite there being valuable reasons for giving the pardon, for granting the pardon, it's very, very bad optics and is going to cause tremendous reputational harm to the United States. It's going to make the United States seem like we're liars or hypocrites in all of the work that we have done in the past 10 years, in the regulations that we have implemented in the standards that we've written, in the international agreements and frameworks we've entered into, in our constant argument of what a PMSC should be allowed to do and should not be allowed to do. Now, it doesn't matter that all of these regulations that I'm mentioning, all of this effort the last 10 years, happened after Nisar Square really showed that we had a critical need. To go back now and pardon these people will undermine all of those efforts. It can and will be used as a justification to, for broader use of quasi-mercenary organizations, these Wagner-type groups. We'll say, well, the United States obviously doesn't care. We can do anything we want with these armed civilians on, uh, operating in conflict zones. And these quasi-mercenary organizations <clears throat> are not just used by Russia. They're used in Africa and the Middle East and potentially by China, too, in the developing world. It's also going to add impetus for this international convention that I mentioned before, which will restrict the ability of governments to use private military and security companies. But I also see reasons for hope. I think that this act can spur rethinking about PMSCs by governments and international organizations. It can help us to realize, both within the U.S. government and internationally, that the work regulating private military and security companies is not done. It can bring attention to the greater use of these quasi-mercenary organizations by Russia, Yemen, Mozambique, other countries. It can raise the importance of standards, that these are the standards. These are what we expect these companies to do and not do. After Nisor Square, we expanded extraterritorial jurisdiction. Now, in all military contingency operations, Civilians accompanying the force are not only subject to the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act, they are also subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. However, we still don't have the broader act that would encompass all civilians operating in contingency areas, so that if it's not a military-led contingency, if it's a State Department-led contingency and there are no significant military forces there, we still have doubtful jurisdictional ability, still doubtful statutory authority to bring these to trials. But most important, as we look at what happened with the Blackwater cases, with the pardon, and with the things that we want to do 
to establish rule of law and justice with private military and security companies that we cannot use unjust means in pursuit of justice. Now, this has been very long, and I thank you for staying with me through this. This has been a very complex subject and something that cannot be described in 30 seconds or even 10 minutes or 12 minutes. Next time, I'm going to talk about the things that we've done since Nisor Square to make sure that another Nisor Square doesn't happen here on the ancient art of modern warfare.